welcome to the Law of Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARV, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-host, another editor-at-large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking to poet and critic Jackie Wang about her new book of poems, The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. That's right. And much of the book is about dreams and psychoanalysis. And so we talked to Jackie about both of those things. And I want to ask you, Kate, what do you think about dreams? (laughs) What do I think about them? Do you have them? Oh, I have tons. And as I mentioned to you just a second ago, uh, recently you were in a dream of mine. Oh, yeah. Would you like to tell me and everybody else what I was doing in there? I don't really, the symbolism, I think there's sometimes where where dreams, like it seems so obvious what they would mean if you were going to analyze them in a, you know, one-to-one ratio. So the symbolism of this dream, I would be embarrassed to really get into. Or so if I I feel like if I tell the full dream, you'll just completely infer what it, what it means. All I'll say is that we, we went to a party that was down a dirt like a really muddy dirt path. And once the car went down, we could not get back up. And there was more details, but uh, why don't you tell me about your dreams, Dan? My most common dream is an anxiety dream in which I have a pet, usually a dog or a baby. And in the middle of the dream, I will realize that I failed to take care of the pet or the baby and I'll have to run and try to resuscitate it. And usually it's, it's too late. Usually I find it and it's, and it's too late to resuscitate it. It's a terrible dream and I have it on a regular basis. Oh my God. Wow. That is a, that is, that's a nightmare, right? Yeah. 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 Yes. That's a better word for it. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's a nightmare. I have some, I have some ideas about what it means, but you know, um, listeners, if you have any ideas, let me know. Okay. On that note, let's get to our interview with Jackie, who has lots of ideas about what dreams mean. That's right. Let's talk to Jackie Wang. Today we're talking to poet, essayist, and critic Jackie Wang, whose new collection of poetry was just published by Night Boat Books. It's called The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. Jackie is also the author of Carceral Capitalism, as well as the chapbook's Tiny Spelunker of the Onero Womb, and the Twitter Hive Mind is Dreaming. Jackie is an assistant professor of culture and media studies at the New School. She also works on race, surveillance technology, and the political economy of prisons and police. This new collection of poetry, I'm going to do the whole title again, everybody, get ready. The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void explores dreams, psychoanalysis, and the work of the imagination, which she beautifully calls in the book the work of creating openings where there were previously none. Wang uses dreams to get to very concrete historical and social issues. She writes about the apocalypse, survival, intimacy, speech, silence, and of course, sunflowers. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me here today. That was a nice summary of the book also. I appreciate that you described it as a psychoanalytic text because that's certainly a subtext coursing through the book. Of course, how could anything about dreams not have that somewhere, right? So maybe we could start 
just with your long interest in dreams and dream states. And even just from that intro, I'm hearing, you know, the, the chat books that you've published also seem to relate to dreams. And I'm just wondering how this collection either kind of culminates that interest or did you go a different direction here? When did the poems in here start being written? That's a really, really great question. If I'm starting with the last question, I would say that usually the way that I write books is I just write. And then (laughs) after a certain number of years, I'm like, oh, I have enough material (laughs) to make up a book. And then I go back to the drawing board and start thinking about the form and the shape of the book. That's kind of how my book, Carceral Capitalism, came together. And with this book, The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void, I really started writing the poems, I want to say maybe about eight years ago. So it's been a really, really long time in the making. And when I started composing the book, I didn't really set out to write a book about dreams. I've just been obsessed with dreams, I would say, for the last 10 or so years, for at least a decade. I've kept a dream journal for a very long time. So I try to keep a notebook next to my bed, or I use my memo app on my phone or the notes app on my phone to try to document dreams immediately upon waking. And then over the course of many years, I try to track recurring symbolism in my dreams. So the sunflower was a symbol that has been recurring in my dream life, probably for my whole life. But certainly since I've started very consciously documenting and tracking my dreams. And I should also say that I started intensive psychoanalysis. So that's four days a week on the couch, six or so years ago. So I have this parallel interest in the psychoanalysis of dreams. I've done a little bit of research and writing on dream theory, although I haven't really published much of that work. It's just work that I was writing in grad school, taking classes, working on oceanic feeling and dreams in the work of Edouard Glissant. So dreams have been something that I've been thinking about for a very long time. I just, I've been magnetized by the potency of dreams not only dreams as a window into our personal lives, but also dreams as a way to index the social world, you know, index things like climate catastrophe, technological dystopias. The prison system is recurring in my dream life as well. So I use dreams to track all of these things. And I'm really interested in thinking about dreams from every angle there is, not only the psychoanalytic perspective, not only from a poetics or poetry perspective, but also thinking about the role of dreaming in our lives and the function of dreaming. And what do you think sparked that interest? 
I think everybody can relate to that, obviously. Well, I suppose there's these weird people who don't have any dreams and those people really concern me when I meet them and talk to them. But what do you think was like the igniting spark of interest that moved you from just tracking your dreams and sort of thinking about them in a way that was personal to you or psychoanalytical or whatever into using them to access other kinds of processes or things out in the world? For me, I guess it all started with the experience of living alone in an adobe house in Mesilla, New Mexico. In this house that was literally built in the mid-19th century. And I didn't have any internet. I didn't have a smartphone. I was living alone in this tiny adobe house on a pecan orchard. And I developed a really intense relationship to my dream life in that period. I was extremely depressed and going through a protracted period of grief where I was processing a lot of things. I was reading like several books a day because I had nothing else to do living alone. And so I just started very closely tracking my dreams and thinking about my dreams. And I wrote like thousands of pages while I was living alone in that Adobe house. And I had notebooks that I would decorate. I would buy these little spiral notebooks from the Dollar General and I would make collages on them and they like became my dream journal. So that, I think that was probably the initial spark, like a really long, intense period of inwardness and introspection I really felt like my psychological state mirrored the desert environment that I was in at that time. And I really think that's when I developed an interest in psychoanalytic theory and in my dream life. And then I would say after I emerged from that period, I developed a practice of transcribing my dreams. So when I initially opened <laughs> my Twitter account, the way that I used Twitter in the early days of having a Twitter account was I would immediately tweet my dreams upon waking. And that really plugged me into dreaming as a social practice because people would tweet their dreams at me. And that was where the idea of the Twitter hive mind is dreaming. The title of that curated chapbook came from. It came from this practice of sending these dream tweets into the Twitter universe immediately upon waking and doing like live dream recall. And then you start to think about, well, what are the things that other people are dreaming about and how does our dreaming synchronize in certain moments? So currently during the pandemic, dream researchers have been studying the effects of the pandemic and the quarantine on our dream lives because 
the fear of coronavirus itself has had an effect on what we dream. Like a lot of people are dreaming of insects or nebulous um, contagion infecting people and even being in quarantine and not being able to move around and travel or go into a workplace has also made us aware of our dreams in a way that we haven't been aware of before the pandemic. So that really made me aware of the impact of the social and political and external context on our dream lives. I guess the register of society or like shared societal events in dreams makes me think of the book deals so much with these kind of dreams of apocalypse. And I guess there's some way in which the dream could be understood as a place of desire, you know, that the desire for it finally, like when I was reading the book, I kept on thinking of like the M&I's, the eschaton. I'm not sure how to say that, but basically that almost this wish for it just to get over with, to see it, to be it with that constant fear that I think we all share at this point of what the end days will look like and where we'll be and how we'll experience it. And of course it would make sense, you know, people all going through coronavirus together, it would show up in dreams and same with climate change. I don't know how much, you know, it's kind of rationed out in psychoanalytic theory, what dreams are, what they accomplish for our psyche, but maybe you could just talk about dreaming of apocalypse and collectively dreaming of apocalypse and almost what role do you think it plays from a psychoanalytic perspective? Yeah, it's a really, really great question because there are limits to the psychoanalytic perspective and There's a range of perspectives on dreams from different psychoanalytic schools and thinkers. So, you know, Freud is notoriously sexual in his interpretation of dreams. Like he really views and interprets dreams through the lens of sexual desire, which is very, very different than a Jungian approach to dreams, even Laplanche, who talks about enigmatic signifiers and the impenetrability of dreams, has a really different perspective as well, a Lacanian perspective on dreams. So there are so many perspectives. I would say that I definitely break with a strictly Freudian perspective on dreams, even though I kind of really I dislike. Jungian psychoanalysis and people who are influenced by Jungian psychoanalysis. But I do think probably my perspective on dreams in terms of thinking about the collective dimension of dreams and thinking of dreams not as necessarily concealing our desires from us, but functioning as guides in some kind of way, maybe might be more aligned with a Jungian perspective than a Freudian perspective. But I am resistant to a strictly psychoanalytic hermeneutics for doing dream interpretation because I do think it can be limiting. So some of the work that I've done on the poetry of Edouard Glissant is specifically dealing with the enigmatic aspects of dreams, the, the parts of dreams that resist 
interpretation that resist a psychoanalytic interpretive lens. I'm interested in those dimensions as well. But thinking about apocalypse and dreaming, I think is a really, really important question to think through. So some dream researchers who are coming at it more from like a big data perspective and analyzing the content of dreams, I've read that fear and anxiety is the most commonly occurring affect in our dream lives. I think people have anxiety dreams more than they have other kinds of dreams. And so when I think about apocalypse and climate disaster, I do think of the way that we think about our lives and inhabit the world is inscribed within a very particular temporality. So when we're thinking about the problems that are preoccupying us, there's usually a way in which we push problems that are far off on the horizon out of our consciousness. And I do feel like there is a collective repression of the climate apocalypse that in many ways we're already living through. It is kind of uncanny how desensitized we've become to things like once in a century wildfires or once in a century climate events in Texas that have led to massive failures in the infrastructure. Like we're collectively living through the world, literally being on fire, literally, you know, Miami, parts of Miami flooding, Hurricane Katrina, other places that are prone to flood. I do think that we push that awareness of what's happening out of our minds. And obviously not everyone does this. There are people who actually think about climate apocalypse constantly. But I do think it comes back in our dream lives. It like bubbles up in the form of these dreams and nightmares about climate apocalypse. And definitely I feel there is a dream that I write about in the book. There's a poem that's about climate disaster and apocalypse, but it's also the backdrop is a Hunger Games-like environment where everyone's competing against each other to be the only person to survive the climate apocalypse. And there's often a fear that we're negotiating in our dreams that's related to, for me, I would say the experience of being seen. And there is a desire to puncture the fear and anxiety in some kind of way. So in that dream, it involves playing dead as a way of trying to not feel like you have to hide anymore. And maybe that's like a meta commentary on not hiding from the climate apocalypse as well. Yeah, that also struck me because a version of playing dead is sleeping. And much of the book is figuring out ways to survive. That poem is actually called Death as a Survival Technique. And as I was reading that, it struck me that, you know, sleep is a version of 
that. And that one of the things that you are talking about is sleep as a survival technique, which is a really counterintuitive way to approach survival, <laughs> right? Because that's not often how one thinks of survival or of really accessing what's happening right now, right? So I wonder if you could talk about that. Like, what's the relationship between something like playing dead and sleeping and this connection that you're making to surviving? Because yeah. I feel like that connection is really counterintuitive. Yeah, it is counterintuitive because if we think about the dream space and even nightmares, there is this desire to disavow nightmares because we are literally experiencing what we experience in our nightmares as though they're happening and real. And so what could possibly be the survival function of having these nightmares of processing what's happening in the world through our dream lives? And I have like a very, I guess my blanket perspective on dreams is I have to learn to accept all dreams, no matter the content of the dreams. Like this is something that I've talked about quite a bit, but people who work with the dreams of people who do dream work with people who are dying, who are terminally ill and in a hospice situation, there is a way in which people feel comforted by dreams that would seem terrifying. And there is a desire among some medical practitioners to get people to stop having. This is where I get kind of woo and Jungian. I do think that dreams have a function in terms of functioning as guides for us. But in terms of thinking about sleeping and the closeness of sleep to death, I do feel that on a very visceral level, like to fall asleep seems to be somehow akin to dying. And it almost feels like we die over and over again by falling asleep and entering this different state when we're in, when we're sleeping. There's actually an article that I read, I can't remember the title of the article, and it was written by a very, very obscure psychoanalyst who I just found by like looking for articles on river symbolism. But it was an article about different metaphors we use for talking about death. And sleep, I think, is the primary way that we try to understand the experience of being dead. But I think the main difference between, you know, death and sleeping is that our brains are extremely active when we're sleeping. And it's really, you know, if you study the brainwave activity of people who are asleep, their brainwaves are completely different than the brainwaves of people who are awake. There's a way in which our neurons fire in this very simple rhythmic pulse while we're sleeping. And certainly there are different parts of our brains that are activated even as other parts are suppressed, like our motor 
the parts of our brain that controls movement. Like we usually don't move in our sleep unless you have a sleep disorder. So it feels like both like to fall asleep is to die, but also to sleep is maybe to enter a different mode of consciousness and a different mode of being that feels very different than our conscious lives. And we're just like ensconced in a weird, like linear, rational perspective that breaks down when we're asleep. So I think it's really that part that is the core of why I'm endlessly fascinated by dreams. The fact that we have other lives that we live while we're sleeping and the way in which that really forces us to challenge our conception of the self, to get rid of this conception of the self as sovereign and in control. We have to let go of that when we attend to our dream lives. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Jackie Wang, author of The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Joanne Beard on the line with us today. Joanne's new book is called Festival Days, and Joanne is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Joanne, what book are you going to recommend? Daniel Orozco's Orientation. Okay, can you tell me more about this book? It's slim. It's a collection of short stories that came out several years ago, and it's the culmination of many years of writing. Daniel Orozco takes a long time, just like I do, so I feel an affinity to him. But also, I'm really interested in people who can write short right now. Mm. And so... I went back to visit this book to sort of see how he created these kind of both funny and elliptical and uh, minimalist stories that I would like to copy. (laughs) 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 I shouldn't say that out loud, but I did. Not only out loud, but on on the radio. Uh, What is it about the, the minimalism that draws you in? What draws me in, I think is the idea of everything that isn't being said. And I I know I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm also going to say that I'm reading Amy Hempel's book, Sing to It, which does the same thing. The whole story ends up being about what the author is not telling you, what you're gleaning from the work on your own. And it involves huge trust in the reader. That's what I'd like to be able to do in my own work is have more trust in the reader. I think texts like that do involve a lot of trust in the reader. It's also a little bit like poetry where you, the poet really gives themselves over. Exactly. Exactly. So I think it, it makes sense. Well, can you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Daniel Orozco's Orientation. Thank you so much, Joanne. Thank you. We've been speaking with Joanne Beard. Her latest book is called Festival Days. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Jackie Wang, author of The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. 
I was definitely thinking of, you know, the kind of different synonyms for sleep and, um, and that death was one. And that, you know, I guess, you know, some people might say death is the ultimate freedom. But I know that that is a line of thinking, but then also at the same time that the space of the dream, as much as it's kind of synonymous or sleep is synonymous with death, it's also associated with kind of like a sovereign imagination and, and this ultimate freedom. And I can't remember where I saw it, but I've definitely seen, you know, pictures of workers, for instance, sleeping. And it's like, that's where they get off and get away from the state because they're asleep. And that's where they're free. And same, I would think, you know, with prisoners, with all these people, for instance, incarcerated, that the the place of sleep is where they have freedom over their lives. So, and just because you've done prison, you know, writing on criminal justice and prisons, I wondered if that came into play at all for you, writing this book and and thinking really of dreams as a place of imaginative freedom, but then also almost a literal space of freedom. That's a really, really great question. And I was thinking about that particular question when I was doing an event um, with um, Penn's prison writing program, because there was an event where they brought a number of people who work on prison issues to read um, the poems that incarcerated people had submitted to the prison writing competition. And so, so, so many of the poems were about dream. If they were in solitary confinement, and if we're going back to what we were discussing at the beginning of this interview, the way in which when your body is physically confined and immobilized, that in a sense forces you into your dream life. And there's a, it can have a really, really dramatic effect on your dream life and your dreams can become more vivid um, when you're in confinement. That was something that I became very aware of when I was working on my book, Carceral Capitalism, and I was reading a lot of prison literature. And the first version of Carceral Capitalism was actually going to be about prison literature. So that was kind of how I came to the topic. But then going back to this question about dreams and capitalism, I was thinking about this question in relation to E.P. Thompson and E.P. Thompson's writing on time, work, discipline, and industrial capitalism, because there is this part in that article, which I assigned for my Technologies of Capitalism class this semester, where there is a poem about sleep and work and the way that capitalism pushes out the space of dreams. There's, I just pulled the PDF here up on my iPad. So as Mary Collier complained in a sharp rejoinder to Stephen Duck, and I'll just read the last two lines, our toil and labors daily so extreme that we have hardly ever time to dream. And this is something that I always think about in relation to capitalism, because literally being in the work grind um, can force you out of the dream space. If you're waking up very abruptly to go to your job, to commute, there's less time to really metabolize and think about your dreams, um, but also labor itself 
continues in our dream lives. And especially if there's a physical dimension to the labor, like my friend Tim would tell me about the dreams that he had when he worked processing mail. And he would literally dream that he was sorting mail. Um, So in that sense, I feel like we need to be compensated for the labor that we're performing in our dream lives. But I am really, really disturbed by the way that capitalism crushes dreams, not only by, um, you know, destroying the space of dreams by making us develop this instrumentalized relationship to, to time and to force us to think about other things, but also the way in which capitalism colonizes our dream lives, which is kind of depressing. So on the one hand, it is a space of freedom and you are freed from many of the strictures that are forced on you in your waking life because it is a, a space of play and imagination. But at the same time, we do dream about the things that we're preoccupied with when we're awake, um, the kinds of labor we perform when we're awake as well. One of the other things that this book touches on, I think necessarily, is the relationship between language and dreams. And often you'll have poems that begin with, I called so-and-so, I told so-and-so about such a dream, or this person told me about this. There's often some sort of retelling that's happening um, in these pieces. But, you know, it also seems like an obvious kind of conundrum because sometimes dreams are, as you said, such a surreal space that linguistically it's kind of hard to really tell them Right, like you kind of, and, and I'm sure listeners have experienced this many times, right? You try to convey somebody a dream that you had and you can't quite capture it in words, like things aren't quite adding up. So I was wondering how you thought about the relationship between the sort of, the intermittent inaccessibility of, of actual dreams to language uh, and the impulse to sort of tell and retell something that can otherwise be ultimately really inaccessible to somebody else. Because they are never, they're never there with you, you know, um, except for, I don't know, magical times, maybe when someone is. But this, anyway, so there's a, this kind of disconnect between the, this impulse to tell and uh, an otherwise impenetrability of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a really, really great question because I did an event with my friend Cassandra Troyan and we were talking about this. Um, there's you know, uh, a saying about how you're never supposed to tell your dreams to people because they're only interesting to you and they're not interesting um, to other people. And and it has to do with the fact that um, there are aspects of dreams that don't translate. Um, they exist outside of language. Communication is often telepathic. Things are imbued with a certain emotional texture, um, but you can't exactly explain how or why um, things are imbued with a certain feeling or, you, you know, communication happens in a different way with people in dreams. It can often be telepathic where you're just in sync or out of sync 
with others in the dream space. So there is a problem of translation when it comes to dreams, and especially working with dreams in any kind of artistic practice. And honestly, I don't think it is easy to work with dream material in an artistic practice because of the ways that dreams resist translation. Like even I've toyed with the idea of teaching a dream cinema class because there are certain there are certain filmmakers that I feel like really can access dream logic and how it works. Guy Madden is someone whose films I feel like are tapped into that space of dreams. It's not at all easy um, to reproduce dream logic with the conscious mind. This is something I I feel like I'm a broken record um, at this point, but I always talk about how hard it is to edit um, material that is cold from dreams um, and how delicate that process is when you go to edit the dream. Are you imposing too much of the conscious mind onto the poem? Um, What is lost when you're using the conscious mind to edit and to smooth out some of the edges, the jagged edges of the dream? There are narratives that are taken up in the dream that just disappear. And then you're just in a different place and different context. Do you, how do you narrate that logical leap, that shift in the dream? It's a very, very, very difficult thing. I do think there are some artists that managed to pull it off. I'm not saying I'm one of those artists, but I do, for me, I don't know. It's just like, I can't help myself but return to dreams as a source in my work. And in some ways, I feel like the poems write themselves um, because these things flash up in my dreams that I have to pay attention to. And it doesn't feel like I'm going to write a poem now and it's going to be about X, Y, and Z. It just when you're in that state, it flows. I, I wanted to ask about the Fibonacci sequence, just because it almost seems, I mean, speaking of something that seems kind of opposite to the dream logic is like a, a math sequence in these poems, but I did read that it was something that you employed a bit. Um, so maybe you could talk about what that is and what role it played in, in you writing these poems. When I went into like a wormhole, obsessive rabbit hole of sunflowers, and there are actually math papers written about sunflowers and um, the particular pattern, which the spiral pattern follows the Fibonacci sequence. And it's a sequence that recurs in nature. And I just found it so inspiring and elegant to think about the mathematical structures of sunflowers. And so I tried to use the Fibonacci sequence um, in some of the poems. So using the sequence to determine the length of the lines of the poems. And it, it was really tough because, you know, it's 
I don't get very far into the sequence and then you develop these long, unwieldy lines that move across lines. Um, but that was something that, yeah, I was thinking about when I was just trying to track not only the sunflower as a symbol in my dreams, but actually think about the form of the sunflower. And I just found the form of sunflowers to be so elegant and beautiful. I mean, every, every aspect of the sunflower. So I talk about like the sunflower in relation to the composite self, um, because the sunflower that we perceive as being like one flower is actually composed of like thousands of little tiny flowers. So I was thinking about, you know, the composite self in relation to dreaming. So sunflowers themselves have a really interesting form that I wanted to capture in the poems. Um, yeah. And I should say that the photo that appears on the cover of the book is um, me standing next to a sunflower that I grew and I'm the same height as the sunflower. And it's really interesting when I ask people about what their associations are with sunflowers. One of my friends described sunflowers as very militaristic and imposing because we imagine fields of sunflowers and there's something uncanny about how as uh, sunflowers develop it almost looks like their heads are bowing and they have like a very personified kind of hu humanoid form almost I don't know if I'm <laughs> that's just me but I thought it was I just wanted to imagine like a weird kind of energy emanating from the sunflower and especially thinking about that picture and the sunflower casting a spell across time was important for me so I think given my own personal associations with sunflowers and basically the first thing that I ever grew were sunflowers as a kid and I had like a stuffed sunflower toy, I just got endlessly fascinated by sunflowers, their symbolism, their form, their structure. There was even a book that I, I read about sunflowers and it talked about sunflowers and sunflower production uh, and the role that it played in the uh, geopolitics of World War II and there are all these other um, dimensions to sunflowers and the history of sunflowers that I just find endlessly fascinating. I wish we could ask you what your psychoanalyst made of the sunflower <laughs> coming, coming back up. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like it's it just it really it evolves because um, I think it's really funny. Agnes Varda, I saw her talk not very long before she died. Um, she gave a lecture. Uh, a few of her films where sunflowers appear and I asked if they had any specific significance for her and she just got so mad at me and was like like what why are you asking me 
this question, like they're just sunflowers, you know, and, and I think the, the quick associations that people reach for is like happiness and cheeriness. Um, but there's like also, I think like, I don't, I don't want to say a dark side to sunflowers, but they are kind of creepy in how anthropomorphic they, they and human-like they are, especially when they're really tall and have these enormous heads. Well, I think that seems like a perfect place to end for listeners to beware of sunflowers and also maybe appreciate them a little bit more because they are mathematical and scientific marvels. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jackie, for coming on the show and congratulations on your new book. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking with Jackie Wang, author of The Sunflower Cast a Spell to Save Us from the Void. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. Music